You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. So what we're doing today, normally I would say open up to the book of Philippians. I always say that usually, the last five months or so. But from time to time, every few months, what we'll do is we'll take a Sunday to remind us the core values that are important to us as a church. And why we do this is just to keep the important stuff, the main stuff, the main thing. Because it's so easy in a church to get caught up with other things that maybe are still important, but not as important. And especially, um, you know, we're a fairly new church. For a lot of you guys, maybe you haven't been coming for a while, you're like, what are these guys? Who are they? Who are they? What are they about? And so we want to be able to stop every few months and just to highlight, take time to communicate what's important to us as a church, what's important to Reality Honolulu. And in the past, if you've been with us, we've communicated our history, our DNA, um, our, why community is important to us, uh, local and global mission. We've talked about these on, on certain Sundays. In the next few months, we'll communicate our heart in, in the importance of prayer in the church. But today, we want to speak on worship, specifically musical worship. And the disclaimer here is this is not by any means an exhaustive or even in-depth study into worship. It's not going to be that. And it's not necessarily also a, a topical message, but the desire for today is, is really to give us a brief understanding of the importance of the role and role of musical worship in our church. So are you with me? Okay, let me pray and we'll get into it. God, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in our church and in our midst, in our community. We're humbled to be a part of, of, a, of a move and a work of God, and we say that this is what that is. This is not our church, not my church, not reality. This is God building your church. And Jesus, you said that. You said, I would build my church and the gates of hell would not prevail. And we see that. We see you're moving and saving, and we anticipate that you continue, you're going to continue to do that. But today, Father, would you remind us and teach us about worship, how dear it is to your heart, how you, how, how you designed it to be in the church, a big part of the church and the people of God. And so would you go before us today, Holy Spirit, teach us, equip us, convict us, train us, do as you wish. Pray that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So here's the basic framework for today. If you like three points, if you like taping notes, this is your kind of day. Um, number one, we're going to look at the theology of worship. In other words, what does the Bible say about it? That's always where we should go, right? What does the Bible say about it? We've been to different churches. We've seen different styles of worship. But what does the Bible say about it? We're going to look at a few examples of God's people worshiping. And what it should do is give us a foundation to everything. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about worship? How is it done in the Bible? Number two is liturgy. So how that theology, how our understanding of God and of worship in the Bible, it actually informs the structure of our service. 
Our liturgy, the way in which we worship, there's purpose behind it. It isn't just because we saw it somewhere and we're going to do it like them. There's actually thought and prayer and purpose put into the liturgy of our church. This local expression, Reality Honolulu, the theology of what the Bible says informs the structure or service of our liturgy. And we're going to talk about the importance of worship to us. And then from that, we're going to talk about practically, like what, with all that, with the theology and the liturgy, what does that mean for us practically? How does that affect us? And how ought we to view worship or view God in worship and how we ought to engage in worship as a community? So number one, the theology of worship. Again, this could be, there's books. There's like, I mean, this could be forever. We could talk about worship in scripture. In many ways and in many forms by God's people throughout scripture and throughout history, we see God's people worshiping. But there is a section of scripture that I want to use as a springboard, or at least a case study, to how it was done in this context as a way to look at maybe how it should be done for us. And so why don't you turn with me to the book of 1 Chronicles? Yeah, we're going Old Testament, going deep. So 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we're going to read it in a second, but it might take you a little bit to get there. Uh, it's right after Second uh, Kings, and uh, you know, if you don't really know where it is, it's about this far into your Bible. Just kind of turn right there, and or that's why in the front, there's no shame in this at all. Just look right there, page number. No problem. Do it all the time. Uh, <clears throat> so here we go, First Chronicles 16. So. What I want to do first is I want to give some context to the, book, the books in general. First and Second Chronicles, what they are, it was one book. We just split it up. It was just due to scroll length. But First and Second Chronicles, what it is, is a narrative to really the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. First and Second Chronicles is chronicling what has happened in the life of Israel up to this point. And actually, traditionally, Jews place this at the very end of the Old Testament as as a look back to the entire thing. And traditionally, uh, you know, it has much of the the same content as Samuel or Kings, but there is some new and wonderful, important information that is brought up in 1 and 2 Chronicles, specifically about the kings, like King David, uh, and what the author's objective was in writing the book of Chronicles, was really to sum up what was most important for the people of God to remember from the past. Think about that. There's a lot of scripture. There's a lot to happen in the life of Israel. There's a lot to remember. And what Chronicles does is it reminds us of the main things. What are the main things that as God's people were to remember? And mainly what it does is it looks at earthly kings like King David, and it uses them as like a type of king. He's not perfect, but he's good, and he's godly. He's messed up. But what it's doing is it's pointing forward to the coming king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that would come through the line of King David. And so we, as the people of God, were to look at what was important to the people of God and say, we should do those things also. And so in many ways, the early church would look back 
and they would look back to things like First and Second Chronicles as a summary as how they were to act and live and what practices they should include in their religious life what rhythms they should have, what they should care about, how often they should do things. This was largely from, this is, this is from the Old Testament, but largely they would look back to First and Second Chronicles. It was, like, it was like Jewish life for dummies. It was just like, give me the cliff notes. So much, like, I mean, we're talking like thousands of years of time. And there was so much tumultuous history of Israel. First and Second Chronicles is a great summary of what we should care about. And so it's great for us when we're talking about worship is to look at it. And so what's happening in chapter 16, just to give us some context there, is that just a few chapters prior to this, David becomes king after Saul dies. And what happens is, is he assembles an army and some mighty men and he begins kind of restoring the kingdom and putting things in place. And the, the large part of what's happening here is he's moving everything to Jerusalem. And he's making it like the capital of, 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 the, of the Jewish people. This is the centerpiece of their land, the promised land that God had brought them into. And so David is with his armies and with his mighty men, they're making Jerusalem Israel's capital. And he builds a palace there. He has kids and in chapter 15, what happens is, is that David moves the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David. The city of David is right outside, like, the old walls of Jerusalem to this day. Like, you can go to Israel, you can look at a picture, and the old city walls that are currently up, the city of David is right outside. You can walk the city of David, you can see the ancient ruins of David's palace that he built here. And so what he's doing is he's unifying the nations. He's bringing everybody together. He's God's chosen king, right? A, a king after, um, a, a man after God's own heart. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant here. And the Ark of the Covenant, remember, holds the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai some 400 years earlier. But what the Ark of the Covenant does is it symbolizes and represents the person, the power, and the presence of God. Like, this is God. This is the person, the power, and presence of God. And so David is bringing the presence of God into the midst of the city of David, and he places it in a tent that he's prepared. What would come after this would be the temple. He wouldn't build it. But the temple would come, and then the Ark of the Covenant would be in there in the Holy of Holies. This is, this is leading to that. It's leading for a permanent dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant for the presence of God. And so what's happening here is that David's bringing God's presence right into the center of Jewish life and focus. This is a big deal. And what he does, the first thing he does for anything, once God's presence is there, is he says, where's the musicians? Where's the worship leaders? Where's, we need to worship. We need to worship our God. And for the first time, in over 400 years after Moses, and finally, finally they're in the promised land, they're in Jerusalem with their God, and what do they do? They worship. This is a big moment. This is a huge moment in the life of Israel, in the life of the Bible. So what I want to do is I want to pick it up, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 7. Remember, this is the scene. This is it. That day... David first appointed Asaph 
and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. Okay, stop there. I'm, I forgot to tell you. I'm going to read like 40 verses right now. So like you got to get ready for that kind of thing. But listen to this. Listen. He's giving like a blueprint for us. David is assembling all the worship leader. It's in the presence of God, the people of God. And he says, in this manner. So we should, we should listen up. Verse 8. This is like David's psalm. This is his song to the people. This is his exhortation to them. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look at the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done. His miracles and his judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, his promise he made for a thousand generations. For the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore with Isaac. He confined it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you, I will give the land of Canaan as a portion. You will inherit it. When, uh, when they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake, he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do, not, uh, do my prophets no harm. Verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy to, of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The, word, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing the joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, God, our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Right? There's this moment in Israel where he's stirring up the people. Like, this is what we got to do. Let me just finish the chapter. Then what happens is he gives some instructions of how to continue this. This isn't just a one-time, like, rally cry and, like, we're good. Now we're going to do our own thing. This is supposed to be continued in the life of Israel. So David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. He also left Obed-Edom and his 68 associates to minister with them. Obed-Edom, son of uh, that guy and that guy, were the gatekeepers. David left Zadok the priest and his fellow priests before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place of Gibeon. 
to present burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly, morning and evening, in accordance with everything written in the law of the Lord, which he gave Israel. And with them were He-Man. I think it's He-Man right there, honestly, guys. And, and Jedithin and the rest of those chosen and designated by name to give thanks to the Lord for his, Lord, uh, for his love endured forever. He-Man, I'm going to say it right there, and Jedithun were responsible for the sounding of the trumpets and cymbals and for the playing of the other instruments for sacred song. This was the worship team. Those guys were the worship team. They were stationed at the gate, and all the people left, each for their own home, and David returned home for, uh, to bless his own family. This incredible picture of the people of God worshiping around their God as a congregation. And it wasn't a one-time thing. It was continued. But here's a few things I want to point out from that, from that big story right there that's going to that's gonna give us a blueprint of, of, of what worship is. Number one is that God is exalted. He's the center of attention. He is the focus. That psalm, that song that David just said before the people, it wasn't like, me, me, me. It wasn't people-centered. It was fully God-centered worship. And his instructions there was to worship God for who he was, just by his character. The first thing we see here is just that we should worship God for his character and for his nature. Because God is faithful and he's love and he's merciful and he's powerful, that is why we are to worship God. But also, we're to worship God for his deeds amongst us. A lot of this song is reminding the people of Israel of specific events that God has saved them from, put them through, provided for them for. And so David is connecting not only the character of God, but the deeds of God personally to them. It's like you're worshiping God, and all of a sudden you're reminded of your personal testimony. All the things he's freed you from, how your life's been changed, how you were addicted to this, that, and the other, and now you're freed, how he put your marriage back together. All the things that he's done for you in your life are flooded into your mind, and you begin to worship God because of that. That's what's happening here in, 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 in David recalling Israel's history. What's also important to note is he's, he's, they're doing it with their hearts. This isn't lip service or for show. There's nothing showy about this. It is deep, heartfelt worship unto their God for who he is and what he's done. And they do it corporately. They do it together. They do it with music, with instruments. It gets loud. There's praise going on. Think about like just symbols in worship. Like this is, this is loud and powerful and we're like... There's all this beautiful noise and, and sounds being lifted to God. So the takeaway, just from that one picture from Scripture, is this is King David, right? A man after God's own heart. And he's, he's leading his people now. And what he leads them into is he leads them gathered together around God. And what do they do? They worship together. It's the most important thing that we can do, that he does. And they worship with their voices, with their songs, and with their bodies. This is like a, just a beautiful, vivid picture of worship with God's people. And it doesn't only end there. This continues on to the New Testament with the disciples. In Acts chapter 2, 
It lists, you know, Acts chapter 2, 46 and 47, that, that famous, like, picture into the early church. This is post-Jesus dying, resurrecting, ascending to heaven. We're left without Jesus. What do they do? They gather each other, and it says that worship, praise, is a large part of their gatherings, large and small. When the church gathered, they were worshiping. I mean, this was... A long time since 1 Chronicles 16, but, but the image, the practice of worship was carried on in the church. And to back up for a second, worship, if you didn't know already, by definition, is ascribing worth to something, right? Worthship, worship. When we worship something, we ascribe worth to it or value to it. And so when we worship God, what it is, worship is praise, it's adoration, it's thanksgiving unto God because he's worthy of receiving it. He's the only one worthy of receiving our worship. And he's the only one worthy to be praised and thanked because of his infinite value and worth. We as a people of God are to view worship in this way. And the thing is, is that worship actually like culminates at the cross. It's the heart of the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do. A.W. Tozer, man, if you don't know about him, you should read his stuff. It's one of my favorite prophets, pastors. Um, He says this. Why did Jesus come? In order that he might make worshipers out of rebels. Because pre-cross... We were doing our own thing. We were worshiping ourselves and our money and sex and power. But when Jesus came, he broke the power of sin and bondage. We came under a new lordship, and we no longer worship ourselves or the ways of the world. We worship our King Jesus. We were rebels, and now we're made into worshipers. This is the heart of the gospel, to make worshipers out of rebels. And so having this as our theology, I know for you Bible scholars, you're like, wow, you're already leaving the Bible for a second? I'm not leaving the Bible. I'm just connecting it real quick. (laughs) Having this as our theology of what the Bible informs us about what it says about worship informs our liturgy. Again, liturgy is the flow or content of the church, specifically its services. And as you know, every church has a different liturgy. Every church looks different. They do worship different. They do worship uh, the amount of worship when they do it in the service. Very different. And, but the theology of what the Bible says should put worship in the position and place of importance, very big importance in the church. And we believe that. We believe that because of what the Bible says about worship, we should put it in a, a position and place of value. And in other words, um, it's not just scripture that's reserved for this. This is the heritage of the body of Christ over the last 2,000 years. When people get saved, every tongue, tribe, and nation get redeemed by the blood of Christ, they begin to sing songs in their own native tongues with their own native instruments to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is something we join into as well. This is something that we carry as the people of God. And... Um, I've been a part of reality since the beginning, um, like 15 or 16 years ago when like the reality family of churches started. And so there's about 10 realities now all over. If you didn't know, we're like the baby of the family, been like a year and a half old. But 
but if you're not used to the way we do it, a lot of times, this is like, I've heard this a hundred times. Oh, what'd you think? What'd you think? Or like, you came, but you're not coming anymore. What'd you think? Too much worship. Too much worship. There's too much. How come you play like four songs after the sermon? I want one. I want to walk out the door. This is the thing. We just do it differently. Not differently from everyone, but traditionally, we put, you know, a few songs up front and a few songs after the sermon. And again, I'm not speaking ill of anyone else. We just have a conviction as a reality family of churches and at Reality Honolulu that a big chunk, almost half, well, it depends on how long I preach for, but about half the service is worship. Normally is. And there's a reason why we do that. There's a reason why we worship first and then teach the word of God and have more worship after. We believe that worship, those first couple songs, and I don't want to put a trip on people, but it isn't just to like a buffer to get here. No, I get it, kids. I get it. I get it. I'm not, I'm not, no pressure. But it's not just that. What we believe is that the worship of God prepares our hearts for the word of God. Like we believe that the worship of God prepares us to receive the word of God. But then, instead of just going, amen, go to lunch, again, again, I said that kind of bad, but I didn't mean it bad. What we believe is maybe a conviction for us, how we do things. Our favorite time, the time we would say, if you're going to come to anything, come to the time after the sermon, the song. This is a time of response. This is a time of like, what did God speak to you? How did his Holy Spirit minister to you? What is he doing in your life? And if you're like me, if I just got let out of church right after the sermon, I'd forget everything. Nothing, I would never like go, I would never go into it and figure it out later. And oh, you know what? I'm going to like dwell on this. I'm actually going to pray about that later. If I didn't have that, I grew up in this beautiful sense of like, no, after the sermon, that's when, you, that's when you commune with the Lord. That's when you talk with him. That's when you praise him. That's when you get prayer. This is a time of response. And so for us, that's why we do it. We have this time of response after the sermon to praise and commune with our God while being in his presence. And we want to make space for that. We want to dedicate like time for that. Because you guys, we just don't get time like that to be in the presence of God, worshiping with the body of Christ. And also, that's why we kind of arrange the room in certain ways. There's actually like the thought about it. Um, these carpets up here, if you didn't know there's carpets, there's carpets. It's not just so like I have a comfy thing to stand on or to like fill space. These carpets are for all of us in that worship, first or second set of worship, doesn't matter, to come before God reverently and just try out to receive, to worship, but to be reverent before him and just like, like he's the king, because he is. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is for you to do that. It's for us to do that. Also, like that's why we have some space in the back that you can be back there if you need. If we could, we would close all these windows, but then you wouldn't come to church because it would be so hot. But we would to make it darker in here so there would just be this setting where you didn't feel like you had to worry so much about the person around us or you weren't as distracted. We would make this, we, we care about how the room is so that we can worship, the God, worship God fully. So maybe that's our next work day, AC in here. What do you think? Huh? Okay, 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 okay. let's do it, let's do it. Uh, <clears throat> 
But here's the deal. We as a church place high value and high importance on worship. We always have and we always will. It's not gonna, if it's too much worship, if anything, we want more. We want to stretch it a little bit more. So <laughs> the presence of God is the best thing that we have going for us, hands down. Always will be. God leaves, <laughs> we're in trouble. I'm out, I'm, I'm out. If the, presence of, the presence of God is the best thing we have going for us. Absolutely. And so, practically, so because the Bible tells of worship's role and importance, and we're attempting to value and elevate and participate in our liturgy, in our church gatherings, it would only be right if we now ask, so what is our role in this? How ought we to view worship? Maybe for many of you, this might be eye-opening that, that worship isn't about us. It's not. And what worship is absolutely not is it's not supposed to be a show. I don't mean to speak bad. But it's not supposed to be a show. It's never supposed, it's never meant, it's never designed to entertain us. It's never designed so that we can get something out of it. It's never designed if we like it or not. And that's hard coming from different churches and different traditions and different backgrounds and whether we like the songs or not. To be honest, it's not about us at all. It's about the God who we're worshiping for who he is and what he's done. It's not supposed to be us. It's, worship is not for us to just watch. It's supposed to be so that we can engage in it. Like that we can participate ourselves. Like it doesn't matter what someone else is doing. It doesn't matter what everything else is doing. This is about me and Jesus right now. Like that's how we're supposed to think of it. It doesn't matter if other people are doing it. I'm supposed to be doing it. Oh, and so even like the job of a worship leader, which by the way, I want to boast in my wife for a second. Love you. So she's the one here on the keyboard uh, leading us in worship all the time. Guys, let's just be honest. I'm, I'm okay with this. She's the best thing that we have going in the church. I, I can do the Bible. I can do things. But it's, it's, it's the presence of God, Holy Spirit, you know, Bible, Zoe, um, <clears throat> leading us in worship. That's true. All, all day long. You would agree. I know. I know. But here's the deal. A worship leader's job, a worship leader's job is to lead us into the throne room, usher us into worshiping God with the least distractions possible because we're to engage and participate in it ourselves, not because everyone else is doing it, not for the person next to us, not whether we like the song or not, not whether we, you fill in the blanks. We worship God. We're supposed to from a deep place of thankfulness, reverence, and adoration. Not lip service, but from the heart in a genuine way. When Jesus, in John chapter 4, um, went, went out of his way to meet the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman at the well, he ends this conversation with this idea that, that, that the Father is looking for worshipers to worship God in spirit and in truth. So we sing lyrics that are true about who God is, but we're supposed to be, the Holy Spirit actually is supposed to empower us to do it. It's not supposed to be if we want to or like it, but it's supposed to come from a deep, transformative place of like remembering God's grace in our lives. 
And we worship out of that. And this is so true. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. Let me say that again. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. And the problem that much of the church has, this is like universal Western evangelical church, is that we do not see God as great as he is. We have like a low view, a low understanding of who God is. And so we don't worship him in the way we should because we aren't experiencing and seeing and knowing God for who he truly is. What we need to pray for is that the Holy Spirit shows us God as he truly is. Because again, one of my favorites, A.W. Tozer, says this about worship. Worship is to be captivated, charmed, and entranced by who God is. And struck with astonished wonder at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of almighty God. Like, that is how we're to feel and be in worship. Like, to be captivated and overwhelmed by the glory of God. And how we get there is that we are reminded and have a right view of him, and we pray for the Holy Spirit to give us that view and show us and remind us who God is and what he's done for us. So, reality, I want us to take ownership of this. I can't, I can't just preach a sermon or, or, or say something to you. Nothing will change in worship if, we don't, if, if, if each of us don't see ourselves as worshipers, as participants, as, as, as joining in, as participating in the corporate worship of our God on Sunday morning. If this is your church, like, let's pray this in. Let's run headlong into worshiping our faces off in the presence of our God. Because, guys, he's worthy of it, amen? Like, he's worthy to be praised. And so, what would be so wrong right now for me to do is if I didn't pray right now for us to enter into a time of worship. That's what we're going to do. So let me pray for us and let's worship our King. God, you are so worthy of our praise and our musical worship and us like raising our hands and getting down on the carpets and, and, and kneeling before you or whatever it is. However we worship you, you're worthy of it. You are so worthy that eternity isn't long enough for you to be worshipped. So God, would it start with with a correct view of you. We want to have a correct understanding of our God and Holy Spirit. We ask that you would remind us now, flood our hearts and minds with your character and your goodness and your marvelous deeds that you've done in us, that you've done in our kids and our spouses and the jobs you provided and the way you saved us. Would you, would you overwhelm us with our own story of God and how he's met us? Would you do that? God, we want you to be exalted and magnified and your name lifted high above all names in this place. God, you get all the glory and all the credit in this time of worship. 
Help us to participate and engage and view it differently as a church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.